Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, everybody. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor in chief of the New Books Network. The NBN is run by volunteers, but it also has considerable expenses. In order to continue bringing you the in-depth author interviews that you count on, we have to pay our bills. So we'd like you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the network. It's easy to do. Just go to any NBN page and follow the donation link. Since we're part of Amherst College Library, you'll be taken to an Amherst College Library page. Go to the NBN line on that page and follow the instructions. That's it. From all of us at the network, thanks for your support. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Digital Culture podcast. I'm Chris Baranyuk, your host and fellow traveler into the worlds of cybernetics, digital media, and cyberculture at large. Each New Books in Digital Culture podcast will feature an interview with the author of a new book in this interdisciplinary field. The aim of it all, put simply, is to discuss the literary, sociological, and psychological impact of technology on human lives. And if you're wondering who I am and where I come from, well, my home on the internet is themachinestarts.com. But in the non-virtual world, I live in London, England, and I write about the social consequences of information technology. Well, now we're acquainted, I'd like to jumpstart this new book series by speaking to my guest today, Brian Christian. He's the author of The Most Human Human, A Defense of Humanity in the Age of the Computer. This is a fascinating and unusual book, which asks the question, what does it mean to be a human today? That is, how do we define ourselves in the face of a mechanical reality? What do the idiosyncrasies of our language tell us about who we are and how we operate? And why is that so importantly different from what computers are and how they operate? To help us gesture at potential answers for these questions is Brian Christian himself. He's joining me on the line now from the USA. Brian? Thanks very much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Chris. Well, if you could start by introducing yourself to uh, our listeners and explaining where you got the idea for this book and how the whole process of writing it began. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So my name is Brian Christian. I'm a nonfiction writer and the author of the book, The Most Human Human. 
you know, really, I would say that that my interest in the book came grew really out of my academic background, which is relatively unusual in the sense that in college, I was a double major in computer science and philosophy um, and ultimately decided that I wanted to become a writer. So I went to graduate school and got an MFA degree in poetry. Um, And so I found myself, you know, with these three rather disparate areas of background, computer science, philosophy, and poetry. Um, And, you know, I was used to fielding raised eyebrows from people asking, you know, (laughs) what are you, what are you ever going to do with that combination? Mm. Um, But what really gripped me about the Turing test, which is the subject of the book, um, the Turing test, um, which I guess we should explain in a second. Yes, indeed, please do. Um, (laughs) Okay. So, um, the basic idea of the Turing test comes from the mathematician Alan Turing, who in the 1950s, um, as the computer was really just starting to become invented, was already asking these really philosophical questions about it. Like, you know, can these machines actually think? Would we be able to someday create a machine that could think in the human sense? Um, and if we did, how would we know? And so Turing's answer to that question was rather than to really get into the philosophical side, just to propose a practical experiment. And so Turing's experiment works a little bit like this. You convene a panel of scientists, and these scientists are having these short five-minute-long text chat conversations. And the, the trick, if you will, is that the scientists don't know whether the messages that are appearing on their screen are coming from a human being, who is sort of sequestered in a room down the hall, or whether they're coming from a computer program that's pretending to be a human being. So it's up to these judges in five minutes of conversation to try to tease out who are the real people and who are the computer programs claiming to be real people. And so Turing argues famously in 1950 that if the judges can't make that determination better than chance, um, then we'll have to basically say that the computers are imitating intelligence so successfully that they actually are intelligent. Mm. Mm. Um, and so the Turing test, you know, at at its basic nature is this, I think, rare and fascinating intersection of precisely those things that I had been studying, which is it's computer software, it's this really big philosophical question. What does it mean to think? And then also, what does it mean to be human? Um, But it's all being played out in this linguistic battleground. So the question really hinges on the difference between the way that humans and computers use natural language in conversation. And so in a strange sense, I found myself, you know, perhaps rather uniquely prepared to think about this question from each of those three angles. Um, And And what's more, um, my interest was really peaked in 2008, which was really when I began working on it. Turing's famous prediction was that the judges would be um, unable to, said differently, the the judges would be fooled by the machines about 30% of the time by the year 2000, and that as a result, we'd consider machines intelligent. this prediction famously did not come to pass. And uh, in fact, even by the year 2000, 
the best computer programs were lucky if they could only fool maybe one out of the judges. But my interest really was peaked in 2008 because at the 2008 Turing test, the top computer program managed to fool three out of the 12 judges, um, which is 25%, meaning just one vote shy of Turing's famous threshold. Um, so there was this feeling sort of in the media that, you know, 2008 had been a year where Homo sapiens kind of dodged a bullet, if you will. Um, and so I became really fascinated with the 2009 contest because I thought, you know, maybe this could be the year when the computers finally crossed that mark. Um, and there was this voice inside of me that kind of rose up and said, not on my watch. You know, is there something I can do personally uh, to get involved on behalf of my fellow humans and uh, be a part of the human defense at the 2009 Turing test? Yeah. So, so take us through um, the, your, your arrival at, at the 2009 test, the competition, because I'm guessing the atmosphere there was, was quite... Um, interesting given what had happened the year before how did how did that play out how did you find the whole conference as a whole how did that operate yeah it was fascinating so this was um it was being held in brighton at the brighton center and in 09 it was being held alongside a speech technology conference um so as i walked into the brighton center i'm immediately in this kind of chaotic rush of hundreds and if not thousands of speech researchers. So, you know, these poster exhibitions and lectures and everything from, you know, these kind of eerie rubber mock-ups of the human vocal tract emitting these sort of zombie-like vowel sounds <laughs> um, to these, you know, pure statistical mathematical papers being given by some of the folks at Google. Um, really, the whole, the whole smorgasbord of everything going on in speech technology and I make my way kind of through the crowd to this back room where the Loner Prize is being held. And as I walk in, I notice the the table where all the programmers are kind of hurriedly making their, their last few edits, trying to make any sort of tweaks or changes and get, get them in under the wire. Um, and quickly I glimpse the table where the judges are seated. So all the sort of scientists that are going to be holding the conversations. Um, but I'm quickly escorted behind literally a, a big velvet curtain because um, the, the judges aren't supposed to see us. We're not, it's the real people that the mm -hmm. judges talk to. So we sort of, we human confederates um, find ourselves kind of sequestered in the corner of the room behind this big curtain. Um, and we sit down at these laptops and we're sort of just waiting uh, you're staring at this giant blinking cursor and there's this weird this weird tension almost like you're trying to run a race where you're you're kind of poised in the starting blocks um and as soon as the judge starts talking you have 5 minutes um so you know there's there's definitely this tension of kind of waiting for that first high um and then you're you're off and it's it's up to you to to figure out in these 5 minutes how to convince this person that you're human, which is, of course, an extremely strange um, task to be facing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's get into a little bit of what that means uh, to be human and how you approached the whole event, because I know that 
basically what this book is, is, is a kind of account of your preparation for the competition. Is that not right? That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. So, um, I mean, I think a lot of the uh, instances you, you, you cover in the book where com- computer-mediated communication is, evolved, is, is involved and when it, where there's that communication between humans and humans or humans and machines... I think you're quite critical or, or skeptical about a lot of the situations there. I think you talk about spam, unintentionally mm-hmm. aggressive emails, uh, you know, confusing text messages, and particularly uh, customer service interfaces and things like right. that. Right. I do think that one of the one of the things that makes the Turing test particularly relevant at at this moment in in history um, is that. For one, so much of our interpersonal communication is happening through the computer. Um, and in fact, so much of it is happening over these text exchanges, which was certainly not true of Turing's day. Um, and second is the fact that the Turing test, far from being this kind of abstract philosophical thought experiment, which is more or less what it was when it was first designed, um, has now become an actual part of the way that we navigate the world. I mean, the Turing test is really a part of everyday life now. You know, I just the other day got an email message from a friend who I hadn't heard from in years, you know, and I was really excited to to hear what they wanted to say. I was happy to hear from them. You know, and I opened the message, and they're going on at length about, you know, this really exciting new website with pharmaceutical discounts and all these things. Of course, my reaction is is not, you know, I wonder why, you know, John is so in- interested in, you know, drug discounts lately. <laughs> um, no, of course, my reaction is to say, John, I think you need to change your password. You know, you've gotten hijacked by some kind of a bot. And And now when I compose an email, I find myself in that strange position where if I want to send someone a link, um, it's not enough for me to simply say, he, hey, you know, check this out. I thought you'd find this interesting. Um, because there are now these bots that hijack people's emails and say precisely that. Hey, check this out. Um, that, I, that I have to personalize the email. I have to say something that sounds like me in order for them to trust the authenticity of the message. Um, and so really what we're starting to find is um, whether people are familiar with the Turing test as a concept or not, um, it's really making its way into daily life. You know, that the, these chatbot programs really put a kind of pressure on us uh, to personalize our communication or to humanize it in some way. And I see that as being a, a little bit nervous-making, um, but also in some sense, I think, productive. Yeah, well, it, it's a very interesting point. And it, I have a quotation here from the book, which is, is on exactly that subject, you wrote, is it appropriate to allow our definition of our own uniqueness to be in some sense reactionary to the advancing front of technology? And why is it that we are so compelled to feel unique in the first place? So that was one of the questions you included because you were exploring, as I understood it, where this uniqueness comes from, where those idiosyncrasies come from that you're just talking about, those personal identifiers, the signifiers in communication and I think what you're saying is that, well, whether it's appropriate or not, it kind of has to happen because mm-hmm. we're being, it's kind of, we're being tasked now 
Well, that's right. That's right. I mean, you know, personalizing the email in that way may always have been a question of being, you know, considerate or polite or, or that kind of thing. Um, but we now reach a point where it's literally a part of Internet security. Um, and so that, that for me, as someone, you know, with a background both in creative writing and computer science, we're reaching this very, to my mind, fascinating juncture where questions of literary style, literary aesthetics, um, are intersecting in this very unexpected way with things mm. like computer security. Yes. Um, that, uh, you know, if if Nabokov were alive writing emails, his email account would be harder for a bot to imitate because he has this totally unfakeable literary style. Um, and so there, there is this really weird sense in which aesthetics and technology are starting to come together. Yeah, it's funny you should say that, actually, because the last article I wrote for my blog was all about how computer viruses, you know, the most successful and pervasive ones, carry with them personality and aspects of our culture, which intrigue us enough to you know, let them into our systems, a kind of Trojan horse analogy. Uh, yeah. And that's exactly the kind of thing you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's completely right. Um, and And this is, you know, becoming a legitimate concern, you know, is this question of um, how to tell when you're actually interacting with a real person. Um, you know, The Atlantic just ran an article uh, saying, I think something to the effect that the U.S. military is interested in Twitter bots, you know, as a, as a means of kind of cyber warfare, you yeah, know, twi getting... Tw Twitter drones. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um <laughs> So, I mean, it's this very, very strange, very strange cultural moment where this is becoming a really pressing thing. And, and we're seeing, um, you know, chatbots on things like IRC and on the Internet uh, pretending to be romantically interested in users to try to get personal information or credit card information or that kind of thing. And I, I think the upshot of it is that it's forcing us to ask really difficult, but I think ultimately really useful questions about, well, exactly what, what is it that's going on when human communication is working well? What is it that uh, really defines a genuine, good human exchange? Um, why is it that these bots are having such an easy time faking that? And what can we do to, to prevent it? Because that for me is what's, uh, what makes the, the Turing test not simply a question of technology and not simply a question of philosophy, but also this question that really relates to the way that we live our daily lives. Mm. You know, what what is happening when we're communicating with other people, um, when that's working at its best or when it's working at its, you know, not, at its most lackluster, you know, is there something um, to be learned? Yeah. Okay. Well, well now we've got um, computers and, and people talking to one another Let's try and understand a little bit more about the two parties in that conversation. Why don't we take the, I would say, easier party first, the computers. Mm, um, yeah. And let's talk a little bit about the chatbots that are out there. And you talk about a lot of them in the book. And some of the most interesting passages uh, to me were about the transcripts that you've you know, poured over where computers have actually had scintillating conversations uh, <laughs> and aggressive conversations and emotionally charged conversations. Um, 
Well, let's take one example. What about Cleverbot? Um, mm, yeah. tell, tell us about Cleverbot, for instance. Uh, Cleverbot was one of the most interesting programs that I was up against in the 2009 competition. Um, Cleverbot represents, I think, sort of a, a paradigm shift in the way that chatbots are written. Um, typically, in the 80s and the early 90s, uh, chatbots would be written kind of like an interactive novel, if you will, a sort of choose-your-own-adventure book, where the authors would get together and prepare this really elaborate script and say, okay, well, if the user says this, then we'll say that. Um, but the problem with this approach, of course, is that conversation is just so wide-ranging that there's no way you can possibly prepare your bot uh, for every sort of thing that would come up. And so the question is, how do you attempt to give a chatbot a really, really wide range of response. And one of the great innovations in the late 90s and the, and the aughts uh, was to sort of crowdsource uh, the writing of that conversational script. And that's exactly what Cleverbot does. So you can sort of think of Cleverbot in some ways as... Um, the metaphor that I use is that Cleverbot's kind of like a Martian who has landed on Earth and has no idea how humans interact with each other, but has this note, notepad. Um, and so bumps into someone on the street and the person says, hi. So Cleverbot, you know, jots down on the notepad. Humans often begin a conversation with hi and keeps walking down the street, bumps into someone else and pulls out the notepad and reads off of it and says, hi. And the person replies, hey, how's it going? And Cleverbot jots down, humans often reply to hi with, hey, how's it going? Um, and this sounds, you know, like an incredibly painstaking way to build up a sense of how people interact. Um, but what you find is that Cleverbot's been on the internet for something like 15 years. I think it's had tens, if not hundreds of millions of conversations. And it's reached a point where it has truly an uncanny ability to respond to most of the things that you'd say to it. Um, so in the book, you know, I, I go and log onto the Cleverbot website to try to see, you know, what it's all about, what its strengths and weaknesses are. Um, knowing all the while, of course, that uh, anything I say to it is going to be then used against me potentially in the Turing test. <laughs> and it, it really is remarkable. I mean, I asked it, you know, what's two times two? And it says four. I say, what country is Paris in? And it says France. Um, I try to tell it several jokes and it anticipates the punchline. Um, I try speaking to it in French uh, to find that not only does it understand what I'm saying, but it uh, sort of condescendingly critiques my grammar. <laughs> um, and I mean, it's it, a truly astonishing range of things. Yeah. Um, but but it, the... Sorry, I was just going to say, it's true to say, though, that some of that complexity and sophistication, it's it's kind of hit and miss whether you come across that, though, isn't it? Because, I mean, in preparation for this interview, I spent quite a bit of time with some of the chatbots you describe that are available to talk to online. And, and Cleverbot mm -hmm. was a good example of one where I felt sometimes it could be going great and sometimes you got a rhythm, uh, a conversational rhythm instantly. Uh, right. at, at other times, maybe if you tried, maybe if you tried to be funny too hard, or maybe if you uh, threw in something really wacky, um, the conversation would break down very quickly. And so there's yeah. a great disparity there. 
I felt that a lot of the chatbot conversations, the interesting thing, well, the crucial thing was in not knowing what the bot wasn't capable of. That's not mm. knowing what it didn't yeah. know, what it couldn't say. So as long as you don't know that, anything you know is possible. It's kind of like the, the Schrodinger's cat of personality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think, I think you've touched on what I would say are the two critical weak points in a system like Cleverbot. Um, the first is that, you know, its database, while immense, uh, is, is finite. And one of the amazing things about language is how comparatively easy it is to say something that's never been said before um, or to have a conversation that's never been had before. Yes. Um, and the concept, as I describe it in, in the book, is called getting out of book, which is a metaphor that I take from the world of chess, mm. where um, you know, every chess game begins from an identical starting point. Um, and millions and millions of games of chess have been played, even at, even at the grandmaster level. And so what happens when grandmasters play each other is that they aren't actually thinking about what they're doing uh, until 8, 10, 20 moves in, uh, where they finally reach a position that has never been played before. Um, and so in some sense, uh, high-level chess is not even really considered to begin until the game gets out of book, as it's called. Yeah. Um, and so that becomes a lot of the maneuvering of the game is the players um, trying to steer the other person into un- uncharted territory and get them you know, actually thinking about the moves rather than simply remembering the moves. Yeah, and th- that's your big analogy for how humans in conversation uh, should behave, maybe, uh, should yeah. approach a conversation, uh, trying to develop standard ideas, cliches, and so on into, you know, original discussion. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that we, we find ourselves uh, with a very similar problem when we try to have a conversation with someone as when grandmasters play chess. Um, and I think that you see the same thing with Cleverbot, where part of the issue that a human judge would face talking to Cleverbot, um, is that if you ask it something that's in its database of 100 million utterances, um, it's going to have a pretty legitimate answer. Um, But if you ask it something outside of that database, it's going to break down much more quickly. So, um, you know, if you, anything, anything to which there is a kind of a, a standard answer, a right answer, anything that's part of kind of the social convention or ritual, um, it's, it's going to be prepared for. Um, even, even really startling things, like I, I started typing in some Queen lyrics, like the lyrics to Bohemian Rhapsody. So I said to Cleverbot, um, Scaramouche, Scaramouche, and Cleverbot replies, will you do the Fandango? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's got this incredible range of things. But if you, if you try to ask it something that no one would have ever possibly asked it. So, I mean, just a, a sort of an off-the-wall question like, you know, what, what would taste better, um, coffee with molasses or coffee with mustard? Um, it's pretty likely that even in 15 years, no one has asked it that exact question. 
Um, and so it's going to flounder in a way that it doesn't flounder when you say something like, how's it going? Or where are you from? Or what do you do for a living? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it, it also gives us a useful compass when we're talking to each other. Um, that when you ask someone a question like, where are you from? Or what do you do for a living? Um, a question that they've probably answered literally hundreds of times. Um, you're not really engaging that person in the same way that you are when you're asking them a question that they've really never thought about before. Mm-hmm. So, so could you kind of give us some examples of ways in which you found of getting out of book, as it were, in, in conversations based on your experiences with chatbots? What do you think of it? Some key techniques? Yeah. Um, I think part of it is, you know, a, a willingness to be a little bit daring with respect to the social convention. Um, So one of the examples that I bring up in the book is this thing called the Proust Questionnaire, um, which is this famous uh, question and answer survey that Marcel Proust filled out in the, you know, 19th century. Um, And, you know, the example that I give in the book is that my girlfriend and I fill out this Proust Questionnaire and it's all these strange questions like, you know, under what circumstances do you lie? Um, what what characteristic do you most despise about yourself? Or do you, you know, what, uh, what would be an appropriate death for you to have? You know, just all these very strange questions, um, but they're also sort of revealing at the same time. And when we filled this thing out, we, we sort of shared the answers with each other. And it was this remarkable feeling of... This this real leap I felt in getting to know the way that she thought, mm-hmm. um, and at, at the time we'd been going out for almost a year or something like that, and so it was this strange this strange epiphany I guess for me of um, all these things that I didn't know about this person, who I otherwise felt that I knew you know almost you know inside and out, uh, that we just those questions had never come up in a conversation. We, it had never occurred to us to ask, you know, under what circumstances do you lie? Or, or how would you, what would be an appropriate death or something? Um, you know, we spend, like most people, you know, we sit down to dinner and say, you know, how was your day? Or, you know, what have you been thinking about? Um, that a willingness to try these sorts of offbeat questions um, can actually be surprisingly uh, productive. I mean, so I think, I think that's part of it. Yeah. Um, and I think the other part of it is, um, you know, there, there's a later chapter in the book where I talk about this notion I call holds, um, which is just sort of like any, any detail in a piece of conversation that gives someone an opportunity to follow up um, is what I call a hold. So if you say to someone, I went to the store uh, you're not giving them as many holds as if you say, um, I biked to the store. Because they could potentially say something about bikes or ask you, you know, oh, you biked in, in the rain? Or, you know, there, there's at least one more thing about that sentence that someone could respond to. Um, so I find that in conversation, uh, a willingness to add a little bit of unasked for detail mm. can can be the difference between a conversation that just sort of sticks to the script and a conversation that really starts riffing, um, that you you throw in some random detail 
and all of a sudden the person says, oh, my God, yeah, actually, I was just going to tell you, like, I was watching, you know, the Tour de France or something, you know, like, providing an ability for the conversation to s- start kind of bouncing. Yeah. Um, that's another way of, of getting off of that book. But, however, having having said that, um, we're, we're kind of imagining a, a sort of abstract conversation here, aren't we, with, you know, maybe a really close friend or someone where you're you're ready to engage at that level and at that intensity um because i'm not sure how would you say these uh, ideas apply to a lot of the other conversations that we have in life not just the really kind of disembodied uh, kind of communications that we have with <laughs> lord bless some service people um right. but um but just conversations where there is a subliminal um power play at work or uh, a kind of an unspoken disparity of some sort, which, you know, sociolinguists will show how what we say is indicative of that disparity. Um, mm-hmm. We can't always, you know, be um, in this mode of hyper-awareness. You know? So do you right. think this really applies most directly to the most intimate conversations we would have with people? Or do you think it's more broad than that? I mean, I, I suppose that... I had in my mind, you know, predominantly conversations whose goal is to some extent intimacy. Um, not, I mean, not necessarily sexual intimacy, but um, a, <laughs> a sort of, you know, increasing the closeness between the people involved or, or getting to know the people, the other person you're talking to. Sure. Um, in part, I think, because that's more or less the the main goal of the Turing test really is to to try to get a sense of who you're talking to. Mm. Um, not all, not all conversations, of course, have that goal. Many conversations are purely functional, right? Like, pass me the milk, you know, or um, my my computer's broken. I'd like you to fix it, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know those those domains of conversation. I mean, that's part of what we're seeing. Interestingly, with these call centers. Um that it's customer service that appears to be the first domain of human interaction where bots are really making inroads. Um, And by making inroads, I mean corporations are spending, in some cases, millions of dollars to have chatbots that handle their customer service. Um, So the IKEA website now has a chatbot for the customer service. Um, A number of American airline companies have it, um, Continental and Alaska. Um, the U S army has a chat bot called Sergeant star that will, you know, talk to you about recruitment information. Mm. Um, and I think that it's these goal directed forms of conversation that are proving more amenable to software. I think partly because, uh, you know, the point isn't to be particularly human or personable or idiosyncratic. The point is to simply get get the conversation from point A to point B. Um, and I think part of it also is that, you know, computer software by its very nature is organized around the achievement of goals. Uh, you know, one of the chapters of the book talks about the difference between humans and computers in light of existentialism. So, you know, one of the the big things that marks the human species as being unique, at least according to the existentialists, is that uh, 
we don't have any sort of purpose or function. We're just sort of thrown into the world and have to somehow figure out what the meaning of life is going to be for us, what we're going to spend our life doing, what's important. Yes. Uh, computer software, as it's currently written and manufactured, does not have this problem. You know, uh, it's, it's a series of commands, a series of statements, extremely explicit goals and extremely explicit ways of reaching those goals. Um, and so I think, you know, there, at some level, conversations that take that structure, that goal-directed structure, um, do present themselves as being easier for computers than the kind of non-goal-directed sort of more playful style, um, just kind of chit-chat, you know, where people just sit around and, and say what, what they want or try to direct the conversation in a way that seems fun. Um, that, I think, presents more more of a challenge because computer doesn't have an innate sense of what it wants. You know, it's it's good at executing a goal that's being given to it. That's been programmed, as it were. Right, precisely. Yeah. Well, what, well, what about your conversations now, which aren't so explicitly goal-directed? Would you say that you've become neurotic about how to appear, <laughs> how to appear personable and, and idiosyncratic? Or do you think, I mean, you know, genuinely, have you become hyper-aware of that? Or, or do you think it's, it's more subtle than that? I think... You know, like like most like most examples where you're sort of learning something, I, I went through a period of being very explicitly aware of what I was saying and how the conversation was structured um, and was, was ironically perhaps more awkward for that. Um, but, you know, it, it does sort of sink down into a subconscious level. Um, I think, you know, one of the one of the great moments early on in the book is that I, I call and ask the organizers, um, you know, here I am in this competition being asked to act human, you know, do you have any advice? <laughs> like, what should I do? Yeah. Um, and they say, well, you know, you are human, so just be yourself. And there's, there's something a little bit haunting for me about that piece of advice, especially in the light of the Turing test, where you're going up against software that has been very consciously programmed over many years um, to try to beat you. And so I thought, well, perhaps it's perhaps it's naive to just go in there being myself. You know, am I walking into an ambush? Uh, because these, these programs have studied the way that people talk. Um, perhaps it's only fair to try to level the playing field by studying the way that they talk and trying to kind of adapt accordingly. Um, so, you know, as, as it relates to everyday life, I like. I would like to think now that you know the the book has, you know the 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 training period of the book is now about eighteen months ago. Um, a lot of the lessons have become internalized, and uh, it's it's not so much that I sit down to dinner with friends and I'm I'm very consciously aware of you know the conversation at a structural level or something like that. <laughs> um, but I but I do think that uh, to be quite frank. I mean, I do think that I'm probably a slightly better conversationalist for it. You know, I mean, just spending that kind of time um, looking at what types of human conversations are very easily mimicked by technology, um, what types of conversations still manage to really elude computers, and also looking at, you know, talking to linguists and psychologists and professional interviewers and things about, you know, what what are those sort of 
inimitable aspects of conversation. Um, I think it really has given me a lot of good food for thought. Yeah. Do you feel that um, chatbots and the existence of the Turing test offer a special way into these issues that sociolinguistics, for example, doesn't provide? Why, you know, do you, do you think, uh, I'm basically asking why your whole expedition was justified to this extent, mm. you know, but in in the light of many years of sociolinguistic research into the finest points of um, human conversations and all kinds of scenarios, um, what do you think it is about technology and, and chatbots, if you could kind of sum that up, that, that really opens up the issue? Sure. Um, I think it's really two things. Um, the first is that cognitive science and neuroscience have historically gotten most of their insights about the way the mind works from looking at the ways that the mind doesn't work. Um, so looking at people who have speech problems or um, cognitive disabilities has offered us, I would say, more so than, than simply studying, you know, quote-unquote healthy brains, has really shown us how the mind represents language, how the mind represents, you know, space and objects and things like that. Um, that in some ways the mistakes are much more revealing. It's been the disorders that have taught us, if you will, about, you know, what, what the order, if you will, is. Um, and so at that level, I think chatbots are a brand new kind of disorder, if I can put it that way, um, that they offer us something that the world had not had before uh, that is not genuine human interaction. And so we can, we can look at this approximation, uh, this flawed approximation of human interaction, and by keying in on what it does wrong, learn something that we perhaps had not fully appreciated about what real human interaction gets right. Um, and I, I think this plays into the, the second point, which is really this broader picture, which is that we've had all of these different technological metaphors for the mind all the way through history. Um, before we thought of the mind as a computer, we thought of it as a telephone switchboard. Before that, it was a series of gears. You know, I, I, we ha still have idioms like I can see his gears turning, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and if you go back even to like the 18th century, you see people talking about the mind as, you know, a series of pneumatic steam valves. Um, you know, it's pretty amusing. Um, and so we've, we've often pegged this mysterious brain of ours against whatever was kind of the latest and greatest technology. Um, and so there are some skeptics of AI that say, well, the computer is really only the newest thing that we compare the brain to. Um, and so there's nothing, com you know, completely special about that or completely interesting about it. But in fact, I, I think there's a crucial difference, which is that the computer has been very deliberately unlike, you know, pneumatic valves and gear systems and telephone switchboards. Um, it has been very deliberately modeled on ourselves. Um, the, the word computer, in fact, used to mean a person. I mean, this for me is one of the great etymological ironies in the story. That, yes, yes, you make this in the book, this point. Yeah, yeah, that um, 
before the word computer meant a machine, it was a job description. It was a person who did mathematics for a living. And so originally the word was essentially metaphorical. When, when these machines were being developed by people like Turing, uh, and they had to explain them to an audience that was really unfamiliar with, with what they were dealing with, they would say, well, you know, you can think of this machine that I built as being, you know, it's, it's kind of like a computer. <laughs> and what they mean is it's kind of like a person who does math all day long. <laughs> um, and so one of the great twists is that in the, 20th, uh, in the late 20th and early 21st century, it's the human math whiz that's like a computer, not the machine. Um, and so it, the, the literal and the figurative have effectively switched places. Um, and so this, this, for me, kind of points to what we were saying about um, the way that AI presents us with, I think, a really new and unique opportunity to learn something about ourselves. Um, because AI is basically uh, created in our own image. It's the system that we've devised with everything that we know about ourselves to try to act like ourselves. Yeah. And so with every generation of that technology, um, there's always that gap between what it is capable of and what we didn't get right. And that gap essentially gives us, every time, a new opportunity to learn something about ourselves. Yeah. And so I think that's extremely powerful. Yeah. Well, no, this is a great point on which to end because uh, it, it is fascinating to see where you can take those uh, conclusions, even though AI is at a really relatively primitive stage, if you compare... Mm -hmm. workings of the greatest AI brain to the workings of the human brain, there's a there's a no comparison. I mean, it is a completely different league. So that such uh, conclusions and observations can be made, even at this stage, I think is very telling about, I think, the complexity uh, mm -hmm. of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's your main point, that we're actually, we are pretty special. Um, and it's, you know, the future is going to be a lot about how we start defining that more adequately. I think that's absolutely right. You know, and I, and I think one of the great surprises, one of the great things that's startling about this process um, is that the things that are the most impressive about us are not necessarily the things we thought were the most impressive. Um, you know, this question of what makes the human being special and different and unique is as old as philosophy itself. You know, it goes all the way back to Socrates. Um, and we've traditionally, we meaning, you know, Aristotle, Plato, Descartes, we've traditionally answered it by saying things like the human capacity for cold rationality, uh, procedural, logical, deductive thinking, um, rather than, you know, all that, all that measly stuff about motor skills and sensing, uh, things visually and auditorily and navigating the world with, natural language, forming social groups, uh, recognizing objects and faces, um, that was all kind of written off. And in fact, part of what I see as being the great irony of AI is that it's really overturning, I think, 2,000 years of Western philosophy and saying, no, in fact, it's precisely this, these things of everyday life. It's not our ability to do multivariable calculus. It's our ability to walk down the street and recognize our friend and, you know, exchange a few words with him, that it's 
it's really that unsung complexity of daily life, the things that we take for granted, um, that in fact are some of our most impressive and most complex qualities. Um, that for me is a fascinating story. Well, Brian Christian, I think we've taken up a lot of your time. Thanks so much. For <laughs> no, thanks. It's a pleasure. In, in such great detail. Uh, just a quick last question. I mean, are, are you working on a new project now? Or are you, are you going to enter this year's Turing test? I've thought about trying to return as a kind of, you know, defending uh, champion, if you will. Um, <laughs> I don't have any concrete plans for that. Um, right now, I'm, I'm just working on a couple new pieces, things that have been on my mind while I was working on this project um, that I didn't have time to really get to. So... I'm excited more or less to have a kind of a clean slate and to be pursuing those ideas. Um, so we'll see where that goes. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to an interview with Brian Christian about his new book, The Most Human Human, A Defense of Humanity in the Age of the Computer. I'm Chris Baranyuk, host of New Books in Digital Culture. Have a great week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.